Hey everybody, welcome once again to Rise of the GM, where today we're going to be talking about a sailor's life out on the ocean. We're going to be talking about a famous adventurer, and we're going to be getting into something called close action with guest host Barry Hudak. Join us now on Rise of the GM. Well, hey guys, here we are. We have a guest host with us. Uh, When I was doing the intro, I don't know if I said guest host Mm -hmm. or if I messed that word up, but we have a guest (laughs) host with us here today, Barry Hudek. We're excited to have with us. uh, Going to be talking all about close action, and we're going to be getting into more of that in just a bit. But Barry, why don't you just really quick introduce yourself uh, before we get started here? Well, yes. Uh, 2004 has been mentioned on this podcast, and I was actually (laughs) part of that year, fall of 2004. I was actually in grad school with Eric's wife, Amanda, and I, we got talking about gaming. She's like, oh, you should meet my husband. He does gaming. Like, okay, awesome. Met Eric, got involved with uh, WAV, uh, and I distinctly remember the wall of gum. Of course I do. <laughs> the tower of power. The, tower, the, tower, the gum tower is distinctly embedded in my mm-hmm. mind uh, as part of that whole group. I'll also say, too, I, part, I went to Eastern uh, been there for a long time uh and so but i came back in 2004 and started gaming with you all yeah i'm also been mentioned as the person who brought the satanic panic of dungeons and dragons <laughs> he was the <laughs> introducer from love so that was me and here we are today <laughs> talking about rpgs uh-huh. the fun stuff with all of that yeah so yeah yeah he was the one that came awesome. with the books and he's like guys i think we should play this and we're like what, what is this uh-huh. yeah <laughs> that's right it's great. Well, Barry, it's great to have you on this show, and uh, we're excited yeah. to talk about this close action stuff that we're going to talk about. But that's going to be our second thing today. We are going to start, as we always do, with our little encounter starter, uh, an encounter you can just drop into your campaign. And Adam, I'm going to let you take that away. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, uh, again, from Eureka. Um, this is the Gnome Stew book that we've been working through, and this is called A Sailor's Life. Uh, Recently, a ship with a full crew left port to deliver a cargo of ale, grain, and iron to an island fortress. The ship was expected to return two weeks ago, but never did. Local officials are concerned that the fortress, which houses prisoners and the first line of defense against pirate invaders, didn't receive the cargo and is in urgent need of fresh supplies. Residents are worried that their loved ones are in danger or worse. A second ship will be setting sail soon to both deliver the same supplies to the island fortress and to discover the fate of the first vessel. This adventure is a simple tale of braving the high seas. The PCs may be crew members, explorers, or stowaways. The voyage to the island fortress is a six-week trip that takes advantage of high winds in one direction to reach the island fortress and then sails a different route on the return, taking advantage of the tides. There are a few stops along the way, including small harbor towns and unexplored islands home to possible treasure and certain danger. Wherever the PCs go, they can ask about the crew of the lost ship. You should use these moments to portray the crew as good people. People tell the PCs that the crew of the first ship helped others in need. They defended against pirates looking to raid small towns, and they traded fairly and honestly with everyone that they met. They also celebrated life to the fullest and many a tavern patron remembers the crew as a, quote, jolly good bunch. 
Conflict abounds as the PCs run into pillaging pirates, sea monsters, and raging storms. Monsters flourish on some of the islands where the PCs must drop anchor to attend to repairs and pick up supplies such as fresh water. Reaching the island fortress can be a climactic moment for the adventure. PCs learn that the previous crew did indeed deliver their supplies, but now a pirate armada is planning to attack in full force. The PCs arrive just in time to help prepare for the battle and may even be the deciding factor in defeating the pirates. What happened to the previous crew is up to you, but wherever, whatever their fate, it should match the portrayal as noble and honest people. A sailor's life. Yeah, I love this one. Uh, I love the idea, and I know that we this one was kind of selected because we have Barry going to talk about close action here today. But I love this idea of getting people into a different kind of environment. And I think getting on a ship is completely different than being, you know, in a dungeon or out, out in the forest uh, because the fighting tactics have to be different. Uh, and, and aside from the fact that there's going to be, you know, wind and storms and how do you navigate that? And, and but like, when when creatures come up they could be out at sea and those people who are used to running right up into somebody's grill they have to think mm -hmm. differently and uh, right. even if they do kind of get engaged there's the possibility of being pulled down into this wild uh, untamable tempest that mm -hmm. they don't have when they're on land and so right. uh, i love just kind of the freshness of something that takes a six-week sea trip and you have to kind of think how are we going to go through all the legs of this? Honestly, sea travel in D&D or Pathfinder scares the death out of me. Uh -huh. <laughs> a lot of those things, it's like you have nowhere to go. Like yeah. it's you can't run back to the castle or your home right. base. Who knows what monsters are lurking out there? Uh -huh. It scares the, you know, death. <laughs> Nautical travel in Pathfinder and D&D. It's got to yeah. get that out there, right? <laughs> yeah. And it does sure. give you that opportunity to get some creatures that you don't see all the time mm -hmm. uh, because, yeah, sure. you know, there's it's not going to be orcs coming up out of the water. <laughs> it's going to be something much different uh, that you only get to play with when you're in water. And so right. it gives you a chance to go into that part of the monster compendium that's different. Yeah. This just flashback. It also gives you the chance if you have summoned creatures. I remember, mm. Matthew, you're running the early dormant mind. I summoned an octopus and tried to actually like bring a guy down under the water to try to. Yeah, that's right. that's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, use your resources a little bit differently mm -hmm. when you're out at sea. So. Yeah, it does allow you to get more creative, you know, with that kind of thing and, and definitely get out of the box. Uh, I, I liked I liked this encounter because it's it's a whole hook <laughs> like it's it's a it's a whole arc, you know, I think in this of kind of thing where it's not just a like you're on the boat. And I have done that before where it's like you're on you, you get on the ship and then not a lot happens. And now you're there. You know, it kind of depends on the story you're telling. But I, I really do like this. And it's kind of Matthew, the game that Matthew's in with me right now. Like we I've tried to do that a little bit with some ship travel where it's like travel travel in the game i'm running now has mattered a lot more to me and it's been a lot more of the story than in past where it's like oh you have a two-week trip well you jump on the wagon and now you're there and now we're doing the thing that we're meant to do whereas the it may have been some of the discussion early on about like the journey being important to me but that's like played a lot of role and i, I love that about this that it's not it's really not just an encounter it's it this is a whole this really is a whole adventure that they get to take part in yeah. And when we get to the NPC at the end of this, I'm going to come back and talk about Ooh, some of this. Okay. But I think they're, uh, you know, this idea that they they kind of lay out uh, 
a very generic kind of this is what can happen, but they they throw in wherever you go, you're going to encounter people who've who've met this crew, and here's what they think about them. But conflict abounds, so you're gonna. It could be pirates, it could be sea monsters, it could be uh, you know the storms and stuff itself, and so they leave a lot of that open to you. And you really can, instead of just being like you hop on the boat and then you're there and you hop off the boat, you can plan encounters along the way that deal with a raging tempest while you fight a hydra and deal with uh, you stop at a port and your ship is about uh, taken by pirates and Mm -hmm. other stuff like that. Yeah, I would drop this in as a kind of maybe regional conflict. Hmm. What I was thinking was have the crew is actually supplying arms and supplies to an unknown third party and that they're applying, supplying those arms to this third party because someone else is threatening that group. And Mm. maybe either the town council or somebody in this town who sent the ship to that fortress, maybe the entire town doesn't know, maybe the people don't know, but there's some sort of conflict that we don't know about. And these, the ship is actually providing arms to that other group so why they're missing is they deliver the crew the, the cargo but they went sailing on to this other undisclosed location mm. to go ahead and deliver the secret cargo uh that they had for this other group and kind of like what we already said you can bring in that doesn't have to be a human contingent it could be mm. some sort of coastal dwellers some sort of other unexpected race as well yeah. that, that's what i would do with it they're not i don't want to say smuggling but they're kind of clandestinely bringing these other materials to mm-hmm. some other group. That's, and that's the problem what... is, and the problem is that the person who sent these, since nobody's come back, they don't know, did they get where they were supposed to, or did they Not fall right. into the <laughs> wrong hands? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did the pirates yeah. get there first and maybe have the pirates allied with the other group that's threatening right. uh, this unknown party that, yeah. Yeah. I think that's cool to even like expand that farther. You're, that's the peeling back that we're talking about a lot of times of it, it, this was here, but now there's a bigger situation happening yes. out here that we get to mm-hmm. dig into. Yeah. That's really cool. I, yeah. I, no, uh, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Barry. Given the theme, I would also add nautical terminology to this. Hmm. I, if, you know, they mentioned small harbors along the way, obviously the ship that's going to go looking for the other ship is going to stop there. Hmm. I'd have the PCs investigate some of these ta- taverns Maybe somebody in the tavern would be like, you know what? I saw the bosun talking to an unknown person. I've never seen this other person, but the bosun had a real long conversation with them. Mm. Like, do, do the PCs know what a bosun is? Right. They can either make some sort of check or then they have to like investigate well, what, what the heck is a bosun? Right. Bosun is basically the equipment manager. They're in charge of all of the equipment that's aboard the ship. Mm. They know everything that's on. They have all of the itinerary. They have all of the listings of the materials. They're in charge of giving out supplies and things. So they would be like, okay, why is this person meeting with some sort of unknown person? Yeah. Is this, is this nefarious? Mm. What's going on here? I think that could be a potential clue to the, possible arms deal with the other the third party yeah yeah and in that just uh like so someone like me who hasn't had a lot of ship experience would have to look up some of these terms before i think dropping those sorts of of terms in uh even you know saying instead of saying you know off to the left of your ship you say 
I don't even remember which one it is. Port, Starboard, Port. They yes. <laughs> <laughs> say, you know, on port side, you see blah, blah, blah. And dropping all of those sorts of, of phrases in there, uh, again, sets this as a new and different and interesting thing. Uh, and I think that can really kind of make it stick out in people's minds when they look back at the encounter later. They remember, man, that was like very, I felt like we were just in a different world at, during that time because you are, yeah. you're in a nautical. Yeah. You could even add a pitch to the deck of the ship. You're not fighting on a flat surface. You're fighting mm, right. on a surface that's, you know, moving in multiple ways. You can right. give the PCs some sort of, they have to maybe do an acrobatics check. Maybe mm. they're disadvantaged. Something have to, they have to work that out as also yeah. part of those, that unique combat experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 It's really cool. I, th I like that idea of it becoming more, uh, or more different, <laughs> becoming different from <laughs> our typical, you know, and that, that does help that, that immersion into that of just like the immersion into it of just like, I feel like you said, Matthew, I feel like I'm actually in a different place that, that is cool. Um, there's a, uh, I'll have to make a link to it, but like in our, on our Instagram page, but there's, uh, I think it's liars for hire, but there's a, there's actually a page that does, uh, terminologies. Um, and it's like this kind of thing where it's like, 20 things you'd hear on a sailing ship, you know, kind of thing. And, and, uh, that those things are really helpful, I think, to just bring that about. So that's really cool. Yeah. Even like the purser was there, but again, I think, I think the purser is probably pretty obvious to what mm -hmm. the purser does, you know, yeah. they control the purse. They're basically yeah. the accountant. Right. But again, if the accountant and the equipment manager are talking to some clandestine figure about who knows what, I think mm -hmm. that's going to really, you know, that could really trigger the PCs to what might be going on here. For sure. Yeah, I, I like this encounter. I like this encounter too, for sure. Yeah. 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 So we'll come back maybe at the end of this when we talk about the NPC and see if he ties in a little bit with this. But we're on this idea of nautical and ship and so forth. That's going to lead us right into kind of our main topic for today. And that is the the game close action. And uh I'm gonna let Adam kind of introduce yeah. what uh, who Barry is in that realm a little bit, and then we'll let Barry talk a little bit about what that game is, explain it, explain it's different than D&D, it's different than Pathfinder, yeah. but it's a game that uh, a lot of our people who have been in both really enjoy. So Adam, why don't you talk a little bit about yeah. what who Barry is and what this is, and then give it to him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so like Barry said, we, you know, we've been gaming together for quite a while in a lot of different fashions. And um, you've been gaming a lot longer than I have, but uh, I, I, I've thought it's really cool to have went from more like the traditional like tabletop RPGs, like our Pathfinder and D&D and WAV and things like that um, to, which I would love for you to talk about at some point on the show also um, to uh, more like um, the larger miniature battles or like war gaming that we've gotten to do with you, which I also would like you to come and talk about. Um, but and then into the this naval battle of close action, it's been really cool to like learn this game from you. Uh, you know, just giving you you props. Like you've been an awesome teacher to me. You know, and that is I'm like constantly asking, how do I do this again? You know, like questions when I've when I've run these games too. And um, but it's like a really fun mix of uh, like just strategy and like this thought and all these things and. Um, really was interested in you coming, you know, to talk about that, even though it's not our typical like role playing game, it's not a role playing game. It's a, uh, I'm gonna let you talk about how it is, you know, but a different thing than what we normally are in, but I think a, a worthwhile one for people to see. So I'd love to hear like, how'd you get into 
how'd you get into it? What is it? You know, kind of explain for our, our listeners and watchers to like, just have a better understanding of what the game is, I think, to start. Yeah, but let me also first say, too, you're both fantastic players of the game. So you, d- you. sail the game very well. Adam, so better than me. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, one thing I do want to say is the last time I think Matthew played, he followed my order as a commander absolutely to the T, which caused him to end up wrecking and getting annihilated by everybody. I caused a mess in the ocean for the other team, too. But I'd also say, too, that was one of the most lopsided victories I've ever seen, of which the both of you were on the victorious side. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. So let me actually go back. Uh, I have actually, you know, this is obviously a D&D Pathfinder podcast and I have run multiple D&D games mm-hmm. and I've actually that's probably where my like so many of us that's actually where my gaming started. My dad is an OG D&D player. Oh yeah. Yes. By OG I mean first edition when it first mm-hmm. came out and he's wow. played every single edition since and is wow. still in multiple games. And he and his friend's favorite edition is actually second edition. So that's actually where I got my start. But where my heart truly lies is with tabletop miniatures. Mm -hmm. Kind of like our Thursdays, in the early 90s when I was in high school, my dad and his gaming friends had a regular Thursday night group. So even prior to our Thursday nights, I already had the precedent of like regular, like I, I say this without hyperbole, nearly every single Thursday from like, 1991 to like 1996, I was at my friend Reed's uh, basement doing tabletop miniatures wow. or some sort of board gaming every nice. Thursday before I actually went to Eastern. So, mm. and in the before prior to that, my dad and his friends, the Joliet Area Gamers, aka Jags, they went <laughs> to uh, Historicon, which is a huge miniature convention out okay. in Eastern Pennsylvania, hmm. and there they went and saw. They had to have looked at the sheet and saw a game called Close Action by Mark Campbell. And they're like, okay, this sounds really great. We like mm-hmm. Ships and Iron Men, which is the first uh, tabletop miniature game uh, of, of this era. And they're like, oh, let's try this. Huh. They tried it, they played it, and they were hooked. I'm wow. talking like right into their veins. They came back, they're buying miniatures, they're getting, they're doing big scenarios. They were playing it constantly. Wow. So when I came in in the 90s, that same group, I started playing then and it played multiple times. Currently, I've been running games online. I know you've talked about the wonders of technology and getting people involved. We've had that same benefit. We haven't Mm -hmm. played, two of us haven't played, three of us haven't played in person in a while, but we have had the benefit of online games. That has been mostly what I've been doing is running online games. And now as we're coming out of COVID more, I've been running, I've run about five or six in-person games here on campus at the University of Illinois mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. Yeah. So Close Action is an Age of Sail tabletop miniatures game in which each player is going to be the captain of a single ship. And every turn you plot your move based on how many movement points you have. Now, once you get over the learning curve, it's, it's it, you can get into that strategy. Mm-hmm. But every turn, your ship is bound by the wind. Depending on where your ship is in relation to the wind, you might have more movement points than another ship. So maybe one ship has six, another ship has four. With that six movement points, the player is going to plot out a various type of move. They can move six forward. They could do a starboard pivot. They could do port. Ships can side slip. They basically have all of these commands that they can give. It's like the captain barking out orders in the immediate 
and that's going to be the way the ship moves. Okay. And at the same time, all of the players are plotting their move. And here's where the tension and that, that strategy you talked about, Adam, and I think this is really the heart of the game, you don't know what your opponents are going to do. Mm-hmm. You also don't know what your friendly ships are going to do. So every turn that calculus is, okay, what is my opponent going to do? What are my friendly ships going to do? What are they expecting me to do? So you have right. to navigate all of those yeah. sort of different tensions. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, once everyone's got their move, the GM, i.e. usually me, mm-hmm. we all reveal our moves and the ships get moved. All movement is simultaneous. And unlike a D&D or Pathfinder, you cannot move through friendly ships and you certainly can't move through <laughs> opponent ships. So you have the possibility for ruining your entire day by having a collision at sea, yep. which can be very, very bad. Mm-hmm. Now, after I return to movement phase is gunnery phase. This is probably where the real fun is. It's not just a regatta. It's not a race here. This is actually a combat between yeah. floating gunnery batteries. Mm-hmm. These ships have powerful and many guns on them, and they hurl cannonballs across the ocean at each other, and they smash into the ship and cause all sorts of problems. So when we do gunnery, I figure out how close a ship is, how many guns they have, what their crew quality might be, all of these factors determine how, how powerful of a shot it is or isn't, and then damage gets applied and so on and so forth. Now, the analogy I like you've heard and I'd like to use is a boxing match. Close action is kind of like a boxing match. And I say this for multiple reasons. One, if you're going to win a boxing match, you're going to have to get in the ring and mix it up. When it comes to close action, you have to get into combat. You mm-hmm. can't be afraid. You can't like, oh, I'm just going to stay out. I'm not getting hit. I'm doing good because my ship's not getting hit. Well, you're also not doing damage. Right. It's called. I try, I try to use that analogy to kind of make sure that players like actually get into the battle. Mm-hmm. Right. But also, I like to tell people this is a game of attrition. You're mm. not going to knock somebody out in one punch. Think of a 12-round heavyweight boxing match that goes the full rounds. What does the winning fighter look like? Yeah, like That person is also pretty well messed up and pretty right. beaten and pretty tired, even though they won the match. Close action is very similar. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of mm. time, and a lot of like wearing a ship down uh, to actually defeat that. So the game plays out over multiple turns, 10, 15, 20, possibly even more turns. Yeah. 20 turns or more, you're, you're going to get a good result. Mm-hmm. Now, what also happens is every ship has a rigging, hull, and sailor sections that once you start to take damage, kind of like this is where the boxing analogy comes back, you're not as fresh as you were when you first started. You're going to get tired. You're going to start to get hurt. Your ship loses speed. It loses gunnery. It starts Mm -hmm. to lose interest. Ships can strike their colors. It's like, okay, that's it. We're done. We quit. We can't take anymore. You've defeated us. Right. And th- that's that's kind of how the game plays out over the course of multiple mm-hmm. terms. Yeah. It's very much like you were talking like a boxing match. When you first started talking about it, I was thinking, oh, it's like chess because that whole, what am I going to do? What are they going to do? What do they expect me to do? It's that sort of thought process. So it's really kind of like how that. Multiple chess multiple moves set up other moves later on. So yeah. it's really like chess boxing where you, where you do a chess move and then they pull the table out and you box for yeah. a while. Then they put the chess table back and you do a chess move that. and then you box. Chess, yeah, I like chess boxing for sure. For sure. <laughs> but yeah, he's always said to us and I remember remember this uh, a lot. It's called close action, yes. not 
running away, not yes. staying out on the perimeter. It's called close action. And it's because we would always have people who are afraid to get in. They're like, oh yeah. man, I don't want to get in and get hurt. And mm -hmm. you got to. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, oh, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a good thing by avoiding damage. No, but no, I also, no. it's close action. And if you look at the chart, kind of like a, our, um, a character sheet, everyone will have a ship log and all of the information that you need is on your ship log. And I always tell right. people to look at their gunnery numbers. What is the gunnery number at one hex versus 10 hex versus 15? Well, the number is a lot larger at the look closer mm -hmm. hexes. So mm -hmm. yeah, you, you got to get in there. You got to mix it up. You can't be, and also you can't be afraid to take a punch because you're, you are going to get, your ship is going to get hit. That's, that's your, be expect that. Now, sure. one of the things I love about this, and maybe you were going to get to this, but I'm just going to kind of throw it out there anyway. One of the things I've loved in this is you would set up classic battles. Maybe they were exactly like they started. They would maybe not be the way they ended, but like classic battles between the, the Spanish and the English or between the French and, you know, whoever. And yeah. I, I always thought that was kind of uh, neat historically as well as like, just the, the thought process of us going into that battle. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we, last week you guys did choosing an encounter. How do you plan an encounter? Mm. Similarly, the tabletop GM has to plan a good scenario. Mm. And what I also like about close action is you, you get the game, you get an initial scenario book that has all these historical uh, battles. large actions, you have a whole plethora of history to draw from. And it's, if you really like history, you can like, you're getting into that. Like, I think part of what I like about close action, this actual era, the Napoleonic era, hmm. 1790s to 1815, there's a, there's a certain romance about the era. There's a certain draw about getting out there on the ship or fighting a big, large land battle. There's just something about this era that really draws me. Hmm. And, you know, this, it's obviously not a fantasy game. There's no elves, there's no dragons, but I think there's a certain fantasy element about sort of mm. diving into the past. Like this is an era we can't actually recreate. We, we can't actually go there, but at the tabletop, you can, you yeah. can be the captain of the USS constitution. You can be Lord Nelson on HMS victory. You can play out these historical battles and it, it, there, there's a certain fantasy fun aspect about that. And that, Matthew, you're exactly right. Part of the fun of the GM is what battle am I going to choose? Hmm. What's my scenario? What, what scenario am I going to do? Oh, we did Spanish last time. I'm going to mix it. I don't want to do Spanish again. I need to do something else. So the, the GM needs to have great care into choosing the scenario. And there's yeah. hundreds of scenarios to choose from. Right. And I'd also say, too, this, the GM needs to really consider, you know, you want to make sure that everybody gets into the action. And if there's like sometimes maybe a scenario has ships that are kind of in different places and maybe it's going to take a while for the get into the action. That might be a scenario I would stay away from it, like a convention that only has like a four hour time slot. Right. If I had more time if we were doing it online. Maybe I would choose that scenario. So there's all sorts of different scenarios that you can choose different nations. You can represent different mm -hmm. eras. The original game is roughly 1790 to 1815, but Mark Campbell, the creator of close action, there's all these different scenario books that kind of more or less keep going back. Oh, wow. Seven years war war of Austrian succession. 
And even though, yes, these are all still sailing ships, they give you a little bit of a different historical flavor to choose from. And that's all part of, yeah, choosing the scenario and choosing the encounter. So that is absolutely like, kind of like, again, who am I going to pick? What monster? What are my special abilities? I get to pour over the books and dive into this history and decide on a scenario, which yeah. is on my end, it is actually a lot of fun mm -hmm. on that sort of like behind the screen, so to speak, behind the scenes sort of thing that's going on. There is a lot of fun and preparation on my part or to borrow Eric's phrase, prep is play. A lot mm -hmm. of that goes into if I'm going to set a game up online or in person, a lot happens behind the scenes that the players don't see. Yeah, I, uh, sure. I recently saw a video, uh, and I, I can't attest to its accuracy, but in the video, uh, it was someone saying, what would happen if America tried to like battle the entire rest of the globe? And they were talking about just how incredibly strong America is because of its naval uh, unit, that we have like eight mm. times the naval power of, of anybody else, and just how we would provide choke points and keep stuff from getting where it needed to be and all this. And uh, it made me think a lot about this game, because you go back and you look at like how just how powerful the English uh, Navy was, and yeah. uh, these like David and Goliath episodes that you would sometimes see and play out. And it was, it's just so interesting. It is. And, it, and that's exactly who the Americans learned it from. The British, by the 1790s, basically dominated the naval scene until the War of 1812, when the American Navy actually was the first Navy to defeat uh, the British in a one-on-one -on -one frigate battle in oh, wow. the entirety of the Napoleonic era wars. Mm -hmm. Again, they learned their model from the British. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's absolutely part of, you're exactly right, America's mm -hmm. rise to imperial, you know, and world dominance definitely starts with their Navy. Same thing with England. They're obviously an island nation. They're, they're absolutely dependent on a their Navy, right. and they poured in their resources. They poured in that that's what the, some of the best work went to because they just they just had to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Which on a G, on the scenario side, you have to consider that because five British ships versus five French ships. If you're going to yeah. play that out on the tabletop, that's not very much fun for the French five French ships because it's <laughs> historically speaking. <laughs> those five French ships have no chance. Just yeah. from a historical standpoint, those five French ships cannot beat five British ships. They, they, they just can't do it. Yeah, yeah so, so typically that's, that's not the balance of what it looks like. It's usually it, it, fewer English, more it, other, it's, bigger. It's, yeah. it's also a game. It's not an absolute historical replication right. because right. you don't necessarily want that. So that, yeah, it's usually like, okay, we're going to have a ship. Maybe there's one extra French ship or there's some other sort of... Um, scenario parameters that kind of try to make up for it but yeah. that has to be something you watch out for in close action that the actual historical uh situation can be but i think that's what mark has done is when we go back in time some of those seven years war some of the war of spanish succession the Sp british aren't as dominant and the French mm. are even a little bit better. And so are the Spanish. So it's a little bit more of an even contest. And I've liked those scenarios because we've, we've kind of gone away from a little bit more even split. There's some really fun scenarios in some of those earlier wars. That's really yeah. cool. 
I, I always like a lot when we've went into scenarios where it's like, okay, is this going to be revisionist history here where we can uh, change? <laughs> you know, it's like, how's this going to go? Are we going to be able to flip the script and see? So uh, that that's always a lot of fun. Or I was thinking too, you know, some of these nations are hard pressed for sailors and the Spanish would just grab people off the street. Right. <laughs> like you were a farmer yesterday. Good morning. Yep. You're actually now on a ship. Mm-hmm. Have fun in your new life as a sailor. Yeah. And it really takes years and years to make proper sailors and gunners, mm-hmm. which the British had and the French and Spanish just didn't. Right. Um, so it's, yeah. But wow. I, think- I think this brings up another interesting component of the game. And that is this, when we first started playing, uh, I remember we did it in person, and uh, I think the thing that was so exciting to me, and one of the things we have in here is what do we enjoy about the game? I think one of the things that was the most exciting about this game when I first started was the idea that we would all, in our own head, because you're on a ship and you just can't like yell, this is what I'm going to do. In your own head, you plot your moves based on what you think is going to happen. Everybody does that, and then it all happens at once. That's not something you do in D&D. Everybody has those six second turns in a row. I've often thought, what would it be like if I made everybody decide what they're going to do in their turn, but then it all happened at once. I'm like, man, that's very complicated. I'm I'm not going to do that just right now. But I loved that about this game. But what you were saying about how they would just grab a guy off the street and say, you're, you're going to be a sailor. That was us, that first game. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just turned right into the wind and now I'm stuck. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but then later when we played games, uh, we got into scenarios that more had a commander that was in charge and we we learned how to like uh right. pass signals you know with flags pinafore whatever and work in concert and and obey orders instead of just all fly out <laughs> at the yeah, beginning yeah. so i think and that's cool too the same for me like me growing up we played mostly smaller scenarios mm. we didn't have as many people a few years ago I think maybe like 2019, uh, one of these guys, um, Josh DeBow, he got a, a PBM going. Well, I think it was the first PBM I'd ever been a part of. And what it is PBM? Huge, uh, play by email. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we use everything is, you know, do a computer graphic of the, the game board. And the person who's running the game just moves it on, on it. They have a Photoshop map. You can use Google Sheets to kind of create the character sheets and you can type your moves in and he just looks at all the moves and updates the match and then you just kind of communicate via email. Mm-hmm. It was 16 ships versus 16 ships. I had, Even after many years of experience running yeah. and playing, I'd never played in a battle that large. And that's right. obviously different than a four versus four. And so, yeah, there's a definite constant learning curve where I also, I also enjoy. And it's like, oh, these guys have been playing this game for a long time. They have all these signal codes that they know how to use. And this means this, and they've got like a signal book and they have all these like oh, wow. strategy maxims. I'm like, oh, okay. We've been kind of just doing this thing. This is really great information. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, I, yeah. And I've been playing in multiple, I've played multiple PBMs with some of those same people. And it's really been a good learning experience too. So yeah, there's going to definitely be a learning curve, but you know what? That's okay. Like that's get out there, get playing, see what happens mm-hmm. and just, yeah, try to get better at playing it. And it's analogous to those uh, English armies that trained versus mm-hmm. those guys who are just pulled in, stuck in. Right. And it's, it's fun to start at the beginning where you're just stuck in and it's fun and to just, learn. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, no, no pressure, no worries. We're about to get a huge PBM going. Uh, with Mark Campbell running it with mm. 20 ships versus 19 ships. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's people who have hundreds and hundreds of games of experience. And there's a couple people out there that are playing with like two or three games of experience under their belt. 
and it's, it's going to be great. Yeah. And, you know, another thing too, that one person who has a hundred exp game experience, maybe they're up in the one part of the battle, but there's other parts of the battle. It's not like your ship can command all of like the entire battle. There's a whole right. thing going on yeah. that you just like, Oh, maybe like the greatest player who's ever lived is going to play the game. Well, they can't just own the whole game. That's right. just not the way it works. So yeah. I think one of my favorite things when we played in our first or one of the PBMs we played in uh, PBMs is, uh, it really broke into three, three mm -hmm. theaters of battle. You had what yeah. was going on up at the top and the north and what was in the middle. And then the, those ships down the south. And you had this one group of ships that just kind of turned and took off into who knows where <laughs> for a while. You're like, what are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like the telescopic versus the microscopic. You need yeah. to pay attention to what's going on in your ship circle. Yeah. And some like maybe if you're one of the admirals or squadron leaders, you need to be paying attention to that big, big concept, conceptual things that are happening. But if you're a ship captain, you don't need to know what the if you're in the van, you don't need to know what the rear ships are doing. It just right, doesn't right. affect your move at that time. You, you have to pay more attention to your immediate circles. Mm -hmm. But I was also yeah, I know you've talked about the eight types of fun, uh, which I also yeah. thought was really helpful for tabletop miniatures, a.k.a. close action. Mm -hmm. And I think the for me and you will both can throw in what you think. I think the primary type of fun that this most hooks to is challenge. Mm -hmm. The idea of, okay, Matthew, like you said, I'm going to test my wits about what I think is going to happen. Did that happen or not? Do I need to adjust my calculus? What is that other person thinking? What? How can we execute our team's move as opposed to imposing our will on the other team? All of And then turn that happens turn after turn after turn right. until we have, and like you do it every turn. Yeah. And I think challenge, if you like that challenge aspect, tabletop miniatures and close action is for you oh yeah i also you know for me matthew you mentioned you know sensation and tactile you get to grab the ship you get to move the ship you um yeah i have upgraded all my ships and i've got this big wood block on all of my base on all of my ships now you just grab the block and you move your ship and you roll your dice mm -hmm. all the ships are out there I've got flags on them i've got color-coded nations there's that tactile sensation sense, yeah. I think, too, is, is a big part of why I like tabletop miniatures and, and close action. Challenge and um, sensation are big. And I will say that when I first started, that very much was it for me. This mm -hmm. was like such a different thing. We all had these little ships and we could, you know, it was yeah. on a hex board instead of a square board. I'm like, what the heck's this all about? <laughs> what the heck's? this all about anyway uh and they were uh you know we, we, we would touch them and move them and yeah. you had the ship log that you were i don't know it just it, it was very much that uh, tactile mm -hmm. part for me too yeah, and again, i've mentioned it like, like the fantasy aspect though like you're getting into the era and you can actually research the actual captains and mm -hmm. the admirals and the people who and like we the game we're gonna play is a different version of you know we all know about the uh Cornwallis surrendering it or surrendering to Washington at Yorktown. And that was effectively the end of the American revolution of which we were going to win. What's not commonly taught is the French Navy was blockading, you know, mm -hmm. Cornwallis in and the British could not resupply him. And so the French Navy was a huge part of America's victory. Right. They actually, the British tried, they tried to break this blockade, but mm -hmm. they basically got totally rebuffed. 
and they just couldn't do it. And that that's a major part of why Cornwallis surrendered is, is the naval aspects of the war. Wow. So yep. we're we're gonna we're gonna do a slightly hypothetical version to make it a little bit more even. Again, the historical <laughs> battle, no chance. Mm-hmm. Slightly augmented. Now we have an even chance, so we're going to play that out. And so it's like I'm, we're playing a tabletop version of actual historical events, and there's just there's something cool about that. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. There's there's like a time in every game, and this is kind of a piece of what what you're saying with the fantasy. There's a, there's about halfway through every scenario where I start thinking about what it would actually be like to be on one of these ships that's like exploding <laughs> around you, you know, and it is always just kind of a step back for a minute of like, I'm really glad I'm doing what I'm doing now and not yeah. <laughs> the actual thing. Cause uh, that that's- I, I love this era, mm-hmm. but I only ever want to play it on the tabletop. Right. <laughs> I never want to do that either. If yeah. you watch, you know, master and commander, mm-hmm. the cannonball comes in and it sends splinters like giant wooden splinters yeah. flying everywhere. And the cannonballs yeah. are flying across yep. the ship. Yeah. No, no. no I mean, <laughs> I, I, keep it in the romantic historical realm and not yeah. actually wanting to do any right. of that. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So in the past with uh, other types of games, we've talked about the roles of entertainer, storyteller, yeah, yeah. facilitator. What would you see as you've run a lot of these close action games? Which of those kind of come to the fore? It's primary, primarily facilitator. Mm-hmm. You are you are the rules adjudicator of the entire game. I, yeah. I when I'm running a game, I don't want to play in the game. I have sometimes, but my preference would be to run the game. If I'm doing both, I'm not as good at either one, and I don't necessarily like that. But yeah. if you're the game judge, you are just you know deciphering the rules, taking people through what they need to do. I'm not saying you have to have the rule book memorized. You don't, but a good game judge pretty much knows the rules backward. Maybe there's something obscure that you have to cite and that's fine. You've got the rule book, but those core rules, you'd better know those inside and out Mm -hmm. to a lesser degree. Storyteller and entertainer can be part of it. I I know, I know storytelling and discovering is a major part of Pathfinder D and D. And I think that's far less so Mm -hmm. with close action and or other tabletop miniatures, but it doesn't have to be the entire, it doesn't have to be totally negated. Mm-hmm. you can just put a little bit I know this is something I want to work on as a game judge too even just if the start of a battle you put even just a tiny historical gloss on it if you give just that narrative that story why are these ships here what's mm-hmm. going on if you have that brief story I really do think that adds to it and I think on the entertainer side and this is something I'd like to do too other than like the ships on the board I think that's part of the mood this one's maybe a little bit harder, but what I'd like to maybe do is like maybe get nation flags and like, okay, this, I'm going to put the flag over here for mm, the British yeah. flag over here for the American side. And this signifies who's playing on what side, maybe some of that can kind of come in, but I think entertainer is maybe a little bit hard, but even just that little historical nugget, just that little narrative piece can really go a long way. Mm-hmm. I'd also say, especially if you're already kind of interested in the era even if you just give a little bit of that hook, it really, really works. Uh, there's a gaming convention in town coming up in February. There's a guy who runs World War II battles, Eastern Front. And he just gives maybe like the briefest paragraph hmm. of a story. 
And for me, that that's enough. I that really helps. Yeah. Like you're already getting into it with like World War II, and it's like you already can kind of play that game. But he just gives us a little bit of that story, and it's like, why are these Russians and Soviet and Germans fighting? Well, here's the scenario. Even just that little historical Shoot, gloss, yeah. that little narrative gloss, can go a real long way. Uh, in, in in a tabletop miniatures, something I'd, I'd like to yeah do certainly more of. Yeah, and uh, I think one thing I've noticed is that the little cutscenes. So we all make our moves, and then we don't know what's going to happen. You calculate stuff, and I think when we've come back from those those little snippets of storytelling that happened in there, it's like so and so was turning this mm -hmm. way, but was broadsided by this and found himself in a total rake between two mm -hmm. opposed. You know, and yeah. like you paint a picture yes, of what it, happened. Which you can do that. Which there's pros and cons to the online version versus tabletop. But I think one of the pros is if I'm going to send out a wrap up email every, every turn, mm -hmm. I can put a little bit of that story gloss. Yeah, onto yeah. onto it exactly like you described, which certainly is uh, part of what my mindset is trying to uh, trying to accomplish. For sure. And, uh, yeah, the, the facilitator though, I've been in so many games where the person who's running the game, <laughs> not close action, other tabletop miniatures game, where like they clearly don't know the rules or mm. they're like inconsistent with what they do. You you can't have that at a, at yeah. a tabletop game. Um, you can maybe not know every. You don't have to know everything. You don't. But know the core, be consistent. That can go a long way. And maybe going beyond close action, the entertainer, though, there's some people that sensation and entertainer aspect, that's one of like their absolute favorite parts of tabletop miniatures game. So if we get to the fantasy realm or the historical realm, mm -hmm. some people put a lot of effort into like the actual scenery that they make. Some people even yeah. use like lighting and music and like they just put on a whole production in addition to the game. Yeah. I'm not quite as good at some of those aspects, you know, but I've, I've seen some pretty elaborate games and that really, it does make a difference. A guy I game with, um, he's a really good craftsman. Like he, he, he's got this old West game where he's basically made his own old West town and it's incredible. He's got a church with stained glass windows We've got a jail with actual jail cells. Wow. This guy is an incredible yeah. craftsman. And it put put that on the board, it really does make a difference. So yeah. those things can absolutely come in. The, the, the three roles of the GM can definitely yeah. come into play when it comes it's to- It's not close game. action, but you did a, a miniatures uh, tabletop. It was more fantasy based yeah. uh, where we had a full table and you had terrain and you had ballistas and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, different kinds of characters. And I remember feeling very much like, man, this is awesome because of yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's kind of like, I thought about a ninth type of fun collecting. People love their collections, mm -hmm. lock collections, stamp collection, classic cars. Gaming can be kind of like that. And do you remember that the meme about like who doesn't think about the Roman Empire every day? That was like oh, a yeah, meme yeah. a couple months ago. I don't think about the Roman Empire every day, but people also love to get into their historical eras mm -hmm, or their yeah. fantasy genres or their sci-fi. And the yeah. thing about tabletop miniatures is whatever you like, there's something for you to get into. Like <laughs> Romans, there's so many you can get the miniatures. You can dive mm -hmm. into that. You like World War II? you have so many different avenues in which yeah. you can sort of like glom on to Napoleonic bat land battles. That's a whole other separate thing that has so many different rules, mm. but people love to just get into like, get that stuff, get me the buildings, get me the forests, mm -hmm. give me the hills. 
give me the castles and the walls right. and like let me make some buildings people love that stuff yeah for me it's like let me get a french navy let me get a british navy i need american frigates i need a dutch <laughs> of the 1780s oh i also need a royalist french navy that's different than napoleonic era french navies you can mm. kind of oh i need this 74 i need this 64 those gun those are gunnery rates uh by ship by the way so and for those of you who haven't played, know that you can take little folded pieces of paper and those can be your ships at, at a very cheap cost. But there is something really awesome about getting those pieces yeah, and having yeah. like actual ships that are different. It's, uh, yes. If you buy, you can see the base game ahead, up above me here. That's the 1997 uh, Clash of Arms version. It came with its own map and it came with its own counters. And you can absolutely make that work. But yeah. Matthew, I mean, of course... It's, it's elevated when you put yeah. the ship, the miniatures on the board, when you have a sea hexscape map, yeah. it, elevate, it, it really does elevate the experience. Mm -hmm. That sensation, that's the, the entertainer, yep. it, it, it really does make a difference. It really, really does. I have I one more question. I'm sorry. I just keep firing stuff. I don't give Adam a chance to ask or say anything. So Adam, you can just cut me off. And <laughs> I've talked over Adam too. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my question was, you were talking about like the importance of the facilitating and knowing that rules and you don't have to know every rule, but you have to, you have to have a good idea. But you also, just before we started the podcast, you talked about this idea of beginning to let people run some of those parts themselves. Yeah. Talk about that for a moment. Okay. So yeah, I think as, as the facilitator and the game judge, what I took very seriously was everything needs to be run through me because mm -hmm. I'm the impartial judge and adjudicator of what happens. Mm -hmm. And so what, what happens, let's say we had five ships versus five ships and four of those ships on each side are going to shoot at each other. What I've been doing in my in-person games was having everybody tell me what their gunnery numbers is and then rolling the dice. And then I consult the damage chart. Uh, for what that sort of, you, you basically have some randomization too. It's like, okay, you did two rigging, two haul and a sailor. Everything, all of those aspects would be going through me. Mm. I was also then doing all of the ship movement. So it's like, okay, if we had a line of five ships and another line of five ships, I would say, okay, British are gonna move first. Uh, HMS Shannon, what's your move? And I would move that ship. And then I'd just mm. go down the line and move all the ships. So one by one, I was moving all the ships for both sides. Again, out of fairness, out of maybe trying to make sure that no one fudged their move or blatantly cheated, and or same thing with gunnery. Mm. And then so once I got through all the movement, I would then do all the gunnery. This took a long time. It takes a long time mm. to do that. Part of my thinking was, again, fairness and making sure there wasn't any sort of shenanigans going on. But part of it was, it's like, okay, you've come out to this gaming convention You've paid money to be here, or you've traveled to my house after a couple of hours, and you're going to play close action. Do you really want to be the one who's doing all of this number crunching? But then, so that that's that was my rationale, and it took me a long time to sort of change. But what I was like, okay, let me get better at my craft. Let me think about me as the GM. We were only maybe doing seven, eight, or nine, maybe ten turns, when I, which is not a lot. It's not. That's not, we were not getting good results. I'm like, okay, this has to change. So what I did was two things. One, players move their own ships now. 
I have to say, okay, I mean, here's what I'm trying to get better at too. I just tell them you're on your honor. We're not playing for money. This isn't some sort of professional yeah. league. <laughs> you don't need to fudge this. Move your ship as you plotted it. Everybody grabs the ship and everybody moves their ship mm. as, as we go. That has saved a, quite a lot of time. And I've also then, you know what? It was actually probably boring for the players to just sit there waiting for me to do all of the, oh, these yeah. numbers. I'm like, okay, you know what? It's actually going to be more involved for the, it's going to be a better play. Instead of at work, it's actually more of very more invested. Mm -hmm. right. they and they get to the touch card. it. The, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, okay, for the last maybe like three in-person games I've run, players move their own ships. They figure out all of their gunnery, including like the numbers on them. Their, 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 their number, gunnery number what damage they do, then it's sort of like, you know, if you have a fender bender, exchanging insurance information, if you shot at this person and they shot at you, you just exchange the information. Oh, I did two rigging a hull and a sailor. Oh, you did a rigging a hull and two sailors. Okay. And you mm -hmm. mark your sheet, so on and so forth. Yeah. That has been revolutionary. I say that without hyperbole, radically <laughs> changed the player experience. Wow. How many turns are you getting in now? I ran a game in July with nine players, which is a decent amount. That's a decent mm -hmm. amount of players. We did 20 turns in three hours, which is, I cannot tell you how That's insane fast. of a number that is. That's the crazy, game yeah. was flying. Mm -hmm. It was going so fast. And we just, in 20 turns, you're going to get a good result. So yeah. it's like, okay, I did seven turns and I did all of the work just to kind of save them and to make sure it's fair versus 20 turns. And we had a huge game and it just moved so quickly. Not to mention, you're doing exactly what this podcast does, and that is you're kind of training people how to do it themselves instead of just like set a move and then sit back and let you do it. It took me too. It, it, it took me way too long to make that change. I'm so glad <laughs> I've made the change, but That's darn cool. it, I've run too many games. Like, man, I wish I would have done that move a lot sooner. So, yeah. aspiring GMs out there, think about your practice, reflect on it. Is it right. working? Don't be afraid to kind of maybe give up on some of those. Now maybe somebody accidentally fudges something. Maybe they accidentally added an extra piece of damage that they shouldn't have. That's probably not going to make or break the game. Maybe they didn't do it on purpose. Could have been an accident that, that, that versus strict. Absolutely. Everything comes through me seven turns versus 20 turns. We could have done 30. We could have yeah. easily done 30 turns. The game was over after 20 because it would have been, cruel and unusual to make <laughs> the game because they had been beaten fairly badly, but we could have played 30, which is a crazy number of turns. And yeah. all of it was because I turned over players, move their own ships, players figure out their gunnery. And maybe there's some mistakes in there somewhere. Hmm. I don't care. It's, it's a much better player experience uh, with that in mind versus strict adherence to the letter of the law. Yeah, yeah. Or even that's awesome. I, the first time I did it, I had American frigates versus British frigates uh, in the War of eighteen twelve, squadron on squadron. I had a guy playing for the first time. He did a kind of weird move that I wasn't expecting, and it, usually if a person makes a move like they wrote port instead of starboard, I'd give them the mulligan. But they actually did that, and it ended up being that they were actually really close, much too close to one of their own ships. Hmm. And this is again my first game in which letting people move their own ships. This is also in the early, it was like the second turn of the game. Hmm. I don't know if maybe there was some fudging of the move going on and that they, cause they actually ended up avoiding a collision and they got underway and everything was fine. Also, I don't think I care 
because had they collided, had I strict stuck to a strict adherence to the rules and they collided on the second turn of the game, game was probably going to be ruined at that point. So yeah, yeah. ruining the game by like being a little hardcore on the policing versus letting that go a little bit for the sake of player engagement for mm -hmm. everybody as a GM, I'm going to choose the sake of the player player engagement and fun. So as yeah. opposed to like, did you cheat just then? Now right. we get into the, maybe some of the later parts of the game. Now we're got I'm going to watch that, but an early right. part where we're going to avoid a collision that's going to ruin the game for everybody. I'm going to choose letting that go and yeah. kind of letting it play out. And if yeah. you, if you sense there's somebody who kind of maybe often is fudging, it's like when, when you have a player who their, their hits just seem to be too many and too powerful and you kind of do a little internal audit yeah. and you're like, Oh, Hey, you may want to check that. No, you know, you let them know I'm watching. Yeah. And <laughs> no. I think what I've done is like, I've audited the sheets a little bit. Game turns carry over. So if you plotted, a, if you ended your move on a port pivot, right. you couldn't begin the next turn. You'd have to actually go straight. We could, if you play in the game, we can definitely get into some of that. I'll yeah. check the logs and make sure that like people did what they were supposed to do. And occasionally I'll see like a, you know, somebody in like one of the latter third of the game that I ran in July, they ended on a they ended on a side slip and then they began the next turn with a pivot. Did they, did they intend to do that? Or was it just late? We were getting tired. Did it really make that big of a difference? Probably not. It probably wasn't malicious. But if I start to see that, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll talk to that person and I'll just sort of remind people as like yeah. as the GM throughout the game, I'll just remind people to watch out for that. Or I'll mm -hmm. remind people to make sure that they're accruing all their damage and taking all the factors into play, things like that. So just kind of reminders. But that's definitely something I'd like to get better at as far as like, okay, making sure people are doing what they're supposed to do and we're not fudging something or that, you know, yeah, somebody's not hitting more than they should be. But my guess is, you know, I, I'm a teacher and one of the adages I try to have is trust my students. Yeah. Same thing at the table, trust the players. I'm just gonna, yeah. you know, <laughs> I'm gonna let, sort of let that, uh, I'm gonna trust that their, their intentions are good. Yeah, yeah. What else I will, oh, I'm gonna let Adam, I started to cut him off one That's more right. time. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, I, th I think there's a lot of really good pieces of that, no matter whether you're looking at tabletop miniatures game or like these RPGs that we've been talking about of, of like the rule of fun coming out there again of, you know, like, again, the rules are important. It's what the game is, but, but there are these moments that that like does supersede at times yeah. and it's important to like discern those things or yeah. I, I love, I love what you're talking about with, with sharing that. And I mean, it's, it's definitely about efficiency, but, but like, even as Matthew pointed out, like, a big part for us that we keep talking about is like helping people understand the game more. And that's, I mean, questions you have answered for me, that's like a thing where I've been able to learn the game as I played because I'm like, well, how does this work? And you're more than welcome. You're more than happy to, you know, share that. So that's been really cool. And I think that's a good thing, you know, as we look into even like tabletop RPGs of sharing that load with our players too, at times, like trusting them that, they can look up that spell yeah. and tell and us what it play, is. Get, get involved in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to go here, but I think I am. <laughs> you know, Eric Eric was talking about how he really wanted to get into WAV, and they basically made him like wait and kind of sit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was yeah. thinking back to 2004, the first mm -hmm. time I came over to your house, Matthew. You didn't do this. I'm not. You. It was just happened to be you were the host. 
how you weren't running the game, but the DM made me, I, I didn't get to play. Like mm-hmm. I came over after like, Oh, you should check out Wav. I actually just had to sit at, off to the side and watch you all play that first time. <laughs> oh, and I'm like, oh, aspiring GMs out there, two things from this podcast. Don't kill anybody with a bush on the first day. <laughs> and if you have somebody who wants to come and play your game, don't make them find some way to get them involved. Yeah, don't make yeah. them sit. I'm like, Man, this just sitting and watching D, uh, D&D or WAV or our Pathfinder from the side is not <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, super yeah. fun. Yeah. Another thing about close action versus other tabletop miniatures, the more people you have, especially if you're letting the reins go, you can have larger games. If you have 12 people playing close action, that's an awesome game. Six on six, that is a fantastic game. If you have 12 people playing like Battletech, you're, it's going to take four hours to get through one turn. Oh, wow. like, yeah. The more people you have playing close action, the better the game is. And I, I, that's a very rare thing with tabletop miniatures. I would never do a Battletech game with like more than like eight players. That would be my max. Yeah. One eight players playing close action with the people moving their own ships and figuring out their gunnery. That will be a fantastic experience for everybody involved. So that's, mm-hmm. that's definitely one of the benefits uh, yeah. of, of close action. It's that so, simultaneous move thing. It, it's so it, great. It, those two things, Matthew, has just been, I, I'll say it again, absolutely revolutionary for the actual experience at the yeah. game table. It's, it's been just fantastic. So, And I will say going. this, as far as close action, if you've never played it, uh, so we used to play this game called uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, a card game. And a common thing for us is, so in, in this game, the players are cooperating and they're playing against an enemy deck and an environment deck, okay? So it's not a person, you're all working together. And inevitably, in the first round, we all get hit so bad, we're like, our health is so low, and everybody at the table's like, man, we're gonna lose this. But we keep fighting, and it's amazing the number of times that uh, that battle turns around. I can't tell you the number of times we've played close action, and like, not very long in, I'm like, man, we're getting destroyed. But you keep at it. You keep going and you keep hitting. And it's it's like he was talking about with the boxers. You just say, okay, I'm going to take some damage, but you never know. And it's like the one he said where it was one of the most lopsided wins. I was convinced we were losing. Oh, yeah. That we I was, lost yeah, that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, definitely. And you never, like, you, there's critical hits in close action. There's some, the ships can explode. These are, yeah. Yeah. you're firing heated cannonballs into a wood and gunpowder ship let's <laughs> get set on fire yeah up sometimes yep. that element is in the game where that you know yeah. we have critical hits in pathfinder and D, of course there are potential critical hits that things happen to your ship and bless it and the most recent pbm had a first one of the ships got its wheel shot away and then yep. later on got its rudder shot away it basically could only move straight uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> wow like little things can happen to your ship that can absolutely turn your game around mm-hmm. when it comes to playing close action for sure yeah yeah definitely yeah. So, so i think if you're out there um you play a lot of D, but you've just never kind of crossed that bridge over to tabletop miniatures if you like combat if pathfinder if you're a hack and slash mm-hmm. uh dungeon crawl person I think that's probably somewhere, probably where I am. If you like the D&D aspects of combat, Pathfinder combat, I'd say come over and try tabletop miniatures and, mm. and certainly close action. Yeah. So how, Barry, the, kind of in that realm, somebody is out there and they're like, I want to get involved in this. You have like kind of a path for that? Absolutely. 
I'll probably run a close action game online in May over the summer. Over the, I like to kind of start at the end of the school year and end before we uh, get to the next school year, which works out for some of us uh, attached to the yeah. university <laughs> settings. I'll probably run a smaller PBM play by email game. If you well, like, you know what? And again, if you have never played it, try it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I don't think I'm scary. I will work with the players. I will try to help out wherever I can. Playing by email would probably be the easiest way because, again, I have people coming in from, you know, the East Coast. We have an Indiana contingent. Matthew's playing from Charleston. We have people who are playing Chicagoland area. If you play online, you're bringing That's one of the great aspects. You're bringing all these different people together. So it doesn't you don't have to be there at the tabletop. You can just like, oh, I'd love to play close action, but I don't have any to play. Let's play it online. Uh, I think you guys are going to send out my email. Uh, that would be a great way to do it. If you're interested, definitely come out and play. Yeah. If you do want in person, there's really something to be said to playing in person. Winter War Gaming Convention here in Champaign is coming up in February. I'm running two close action games. I'm also running a Battletech game, the aforement for only six players. <laughs> close action games are set right now at 12 and 10 players. So again, mm -hmm. that aspect of getting more people in there. Got plenty of seats. I got games on Saturday and on Sunday. If you wanted to come on a person. I also, one of the best aspects of my job is I can rent space for free. So I have all of this gaming space available to me at the Spine University of Illinois. But as a faculty member, I can just rent the space for free. So I had like that, which has been a really huge, that's been really fun too. I just, you know, we got this new building on campus. I can get it for free, get the table set up there. We have plenty of room, plenty of facilities. I will probably run a game in the next year uh, and let, if you wanted to come in in person. Let me also give a shout out to the Close Action Groups page. There's groups.io. Uh, the, that's the company that they use. Uh, there's a pretty good discussion group on that page. That You'll also get feedback from Mark Campbell, creator of Close Action. He's mm -hmm. active on that yeah. page. There's announcements about playing by email. You can get your questions answered uh, there. Also, I'm, you know, I mentioned the Clash of Arms version. The 3.0 version that Mark has put out himself uh, is, is now out. So it's basically the yeah. updated and final version. Close Action 3.0 just came out this year. And so you can get information about some of those products at that site. Yeah. Also, there's a he's got all these scenario books out there, too, including the scenario, scenario starter pack that has nine scenarios that are like they're basically designed for I, me and my other friend want to play close action. We have nobody else to play it. Oh, right. here's a one on one. Here's a one on two. Here's two on two. We've got all these smaller scenarios that are easy to play and are really fun and competitive at various historical eras. The nine I played three of them so far. They've all been fantastic scenarios. Oh, cool. And here's the part I like: the ship log is something I have to like fill out and do. If you get the scenario starter pack, they all come pre the all nine scenarios, all of the ships. If you get the PDF, they're already pre-filled out logs, so you don't have to worry about that, which saves me tons of time. And it's yeah. trying to read my handwriting. I that's probably <laughs> that's a really you can find out all of that at the groups IO page. Nice. But yeah, cool. give, um, I want to give one bridge. A lot of people love RPGs, but don't ever maybe cross that bridge mm -hmm. into tabletop miniatures. But it's a close, very they're obviously close cousins in the gaming world, right? I think, I think you know, you all like it too. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think it's a you know, I would encourage you to just 
don't even worry about the, all that learning curve. It's much easier to learn than it might seem like. And once yeah. you get past it, it's really easy to figure out and play. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to share this too, but I do, I do want to give you a plug to Barry of, uh, your Instagram, uh, Napoleon, Napoleonic Naval Nerd. Um, so uh, be sure to check him out there and uh, some miniatures painting um, and some, that'd be a way to contact too about, about close action. So Yeah. And like prep is play. You paint the miniatures, you put them together, you start to think, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes uh, that goes on. So yeah, I mean, I like, I do enjoy the painting aspects of the hobby that includes fantasy miniatures, D&D minis, Battletech minis, as well as the aforementioned uh, Age of Sail miniatures as well. Yeah. Look at all those paints behind him right you there. See, mm-hmm. uh, you're, yeah, this is my painting table that I'm coming to you live from. Awesome. And I'm looking for <laughs> the semester. Still got a lot of grading to do, but I think I'm going to get to some painting uh-huh. uh, here on the not too distant future. It's awesome. It's awesome. Awesome. All right. You, well, I'll tell you what, we are going to move to our NPC character, which uh, still ties in with this whole kind of nautical theme that we've had a bit. I'm going to read this and then let's talk a little bit about how we would use this NPC, maybe with that encounter in the beginning and some of this like idea of being at sea. This one is called uh, James Benedict, the famous adventurer, or sorry, not James, Janice, Janice Benedict. I'm looking for some adventures like yourselves to help me recover a treasure. Equal share to all the survivors? What do you say? This is the guy. Uh, He is a handsome adventurer who uh, has a friendly smile, uh, shows through a scruffy beard. He uh, he wears well-used but functional gear, uh, and he's a friendly and gregarious about his upcoming adventure, although he doesn't talk a lot about his past exploits. Uh, He's a true sociopath, though, is what you will find out. Uh, You won't know this at the beginning. Janice is not hampered by a conscience of any kind. He'll say or do whatever he thinks is necessary to get his way, even if it means occasionally contradicting himself. His motivation? Janice is addicted to the good life, and he makes money by taking parties out on adventures, but then coming back alone. Uh, background, Janice learned early on to hide his lack of conscience, uh, and he's been manipulating his way through life ever since. Once uh, in a hurry to flee a town after getting overly friendly with a mayor's daughter, he joined an adventuring party and managed in the process to kill all of them before they reached their goal. The treasure that they had lasted long enough to give him a taste of true wealth, and since discovering his skill at adventuring uh, at this adventuring con, he's done very well. He has agreements with a lot of different monsters, monstrous clans, to do dirty work for him in return for a cut of the profits. He's actually a talented warrior and a rogue, and he's kept some of his victims' best equipment for himself. So he's well outfitted. Uh, He's able. Uh, If he joins the PCs, your players will enjoy taking out their frustrations on him once they discover uh, his true plan. So it's this guy who uh, he, he... seems like a a charming and gregarious person and the kind of person if you play it right that your players would want to join uh, and it sounds like he's got a good mission with a good you know financial reward at the end but his whole thing is he takes out adventuring parties and through kind of working with these monstrous bands and these you know whoever the bad guys are he gets people killed and then he he gives them a little bit of cut and he keeps Mm. the good life for himself and so i was thinking of this guy uh, in relation with that encounter we talked about at the beginning. So this ship went out, mm. but the people never came back. And now they're sending out another ship. Uh, 
I don't know if it would be something where I would try to have him be the captain of both or him be on board both. Uh, but like this idea, I, the first th- thought I had was, oh, he took this like really great, you know, crew out. Everybody talks about how good they are everywhere you stop. Um, but then they disappeared. And uh, this idea that maybe he, along the way, steered them towards some things that were monstrous and uh, then helped sabotage as they were fighting. And then he plans to do the same thing to you because they're like, we got to get this out there. And, you know, he's like, I'm looking for some guys to help me get out here. You know, here, something happened. We don't know what. And you go. And for some reason, it seems like you're running into a lot of conflict here and there. And it's because he happens to be steering you to Mm -hmm. places where he knows there's going to be conflict. And so I think the fun part of playing this NPC for me would be you guys get into battle and you're feeling mighty, but then things just like uh, your, your crossbow as you're getting ready to shoot or your bow, you know, the, the string breaks because mm. he's sabotaged it. Or he, he does something that throws one of you overboard. And as you're going, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry. But like you see a glint in his eye. It's like, is is he sorry? And you start to get these clues and uh, yeah, it could be fun to hit him at the end and and like really beat him up. But I don't know. That's just a kind of a first thought for me. What do you guys think when you hear this? My first thought is I really like this NPC, but is his middle name Judas? Benedict. I mean, the Roman (laughs) two-faced God and Benedict Arnold. Yeah. Yep. I feel like there's a sort of like (laughs) game like that just immediately takes me out. There would be a foreshadow for sure. But which is maybe almost heavy, but maybe players don't get it or maybe don't quite quite pick it up. But it was that's where I went. It was like portraying Benedict Arnold. Is it like my first immediate thought was that? So and so if you if you wanted to make it a little more subtle, you might change his name. Yes, (laughs) but I also think you know if you I think the two the two faced version in our modern world is obviously going to make us suspicious. But in that Roman sense, that doesn't the Janus didn't have to be a betrayer. It could either right. be like beginnings or endings or like this way versus that way. Right. And I like the interjection of this NPC in a couple of different ways. You could like kind of like what the write up suggests, maybe like early on and it sets up a revenge plot. Mm-hmm. But what if you interject it into like a middle tier uh, PC group and it's like they either know who this guy is exactly by reputation or they sort of smoke him out. Like, okay, he's saying this, but we know exactly what his plan is. And it can become this like cat and mouse of who is going to betray whom and when. Yeah. And then you can play this sort of never ending. Does he know that we know? Does he know that we know that he knows? And like, kind of oh, yeah. like okay, <laughs> yeah. when is the shoe going to drop and when and who is going to betray whom? I think that could be a really delicious NPC. Oh, yeah. If they, if they know exactly what he's up to. I think that that that's that's I think that that'd be I where I'd throw that in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they didn't mention him on a boat or, or anything like that. But right. like I just having looked at that encounter earlier, I thought, oh, this could be such a such a cool thing because he controls where you go if he is captaining that boat or if he you know is the the one in or charge. I talked about how we have factions that we don't know about. Maybe mm-hmm. Janice is playing both of these factions against each other. So it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm actually working for this faction. But I'm actually also working for this faction, and I'm going to try to profit off of this uh, conflict as well. Yeah. The uh, when I was thinking about the encounter, I think, and I'm 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 going to tie it with the with the encounter too. I think here, but one of the things I was thinking about was uh, a book that was really 
I probably talked about in our books inspiration thing is like the Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. And it's a it's a ship. It's a naval journey, you know, that's like going looking for the end of the world, looking for these um, people who have went missing. And as they hit all these islands, it's very it immediately came to mind for this because it's like, OK, dangers and people and harbors and all these things. And they they'll they'll stop and they they may come across there's there's a time when they come across these people who are trying to enslave other people or they come across and they they find oh this was a guy that was as one of the guys we're actually looking for who just decided i actually love this this woman on this island so i'm gonna stay here and marry her and i'm not going on you know kind of thing so they have these interactions and i i wonder i think that would be really cool in that encounter to even be coming across those kind of things. But uh, maybe he's somebody who, you know, if he, if he did um, backstab this crew, it would, he may have some magical means, but probably hard for him to get back to the initial. So what if he was somebody, you know, you're on the second Island that you've stopped at and he's there like, mm. Oh, I, you know, we, we had a shipwreck or I, uh, I got left here, you know, for whatever you have to come up with a good reason, but he's somebody you take on board. And then at that point, he's like, in his mind, the plan is now coming into, you know, into fruition here. So I think that could be a, an interesting piece to like bring him to use that encounter again, you know, with this is you're part way in and now he's a danger that you brought onto the ship, but you don't even know it kind of deal. So um, I'm kind of thinking in those terms with him. Yeah. So there you go, an NPC that maybe you uh, can grab along at the beginning or some port along the way uh, and incorporate into your campaign. We are going to turn our attention to our haversack. I believe yeah. we have a few questions uh, that were sent Dude. in. So Adam, what have we got? Some, there's some rattling around in there. So um, the first one we're going to look at is uh, one from Wataya Hotel. This is the Master and Commander edition of his haversack questions. Uh, he says, uh, Dear Matthew, Adam, and Admiral Barry, greetings, you scurvy dogs. I wanted to ask <laughs> about your relationship to the game Close Action. Uh, for those of you who have played, all of us, um, how has Close Action changed the way that you play other board games or even role-playing games? Have you become more strategic? Or have you been inspired to implement naval battles or nautical adventures into your role-playing game sessions? Thanks for teaching us landlubbers about close action and may the waves be favorable to your nautical gaming. Sincerely, Wataya Hotel 98. So the big question is how has close action changed the way that we've played other games? Well, I can say uh, for me, after playing close action, so when I used to have our players in a party jump on a boat, it was it was basically in my mind like driving a car. It's okay, you go here, you go there. Uh, and I started thinking of wind and weather differently. I started thinking about, you know, the whole being in irons thing and like, what can that do? And it, it, in my mind it, before it was like, oh yeah, ram him, we'll show him. You know, it's like ramming somebody is just as bad for the ship getting rammed. These are thoughts that never entered my mind until I started playing close action and thinking, what would it really be like on a ship? Yeah. Uh, so that's one way that it's changed the way I play games. The other way, I kind of mentioned this earlier, haven't done it, but I have this desire to do a thing where everybody plots their moves and their actions and then it all happens. And I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that, but when I do, I will report back on here how that went because <laughs> I just think it would be really interesting. I'm wondering about like a, sorry to hit that thing 
if there's some kind of like time warp or like there's like some time magic happening that like forces you know you have like a reason in game to make that happen i, I kind of wonder if this room is like time has been shredded you know and and it just mashes everybody together when they do that that, that could be interesting but yeah i don't know i but should give a thing. shout out that i should not be called admiral and then <laughs> there's adam has actually run the last he's been the commander in chief of two different forces in the last pbms that we've run mm -hmm. and both of those games have been overwhelming victories for the shit the side that adam has been the commander in chief i'm just running the game and as, as funny <laughs> as it is of all the experience i have playing the game i, I do play the game a lot mm -hmm. i've never actually run a squadron or a fleet I'm just I'm, I'm i'm the one who's always running the game yeah right right you're getting ready uh, so, to though right say again sorry you're getting ready to run I'm, like i'm playing in a game but i'm not actually a commanding of a squad i'm on the senior team of like discussion of what our strategy is but i'm not actually a squadron commander or the overall commander so okay. probably should be admiral caldwell who's done a fantastic <laughs> job running fleets he, yeah Thank you. I'm seaman first class, Matthew. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I was on a ship and the guy must have died. They just said, "You quick steer the ship." <laughs> I think yeah. I think yeah, Matthew, you're prime for uh, commanding a fleet mm -hmm. or a squadron. I think next time. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think that'd be a real treat uh, for our team if, if that's something you could do. It also takes some takes some time and doing, of course. But I've yeah, rarely. Uh, sorry, I'm, I've rarely. Um, in a gaming situation been as uh stressed out and nervous as <laughs> when i've been in those positions but it's fun it's well, super fun but it's uh well yeah. the fruit of it has been displayed in the victories that uh have been won there yeah. i think for me what also let me say too part of this podcast is helped me figure out my relationship to uh role-playing games mm -hmm. and i think the eight types of fun is really illuminating and again, my preference would be tabletop miniatures and board gaming over RPGs probably every day of the week. And I think part of that, what's been said on this podcast has really helped me understand that. So I think to answer that question is sort of like playing through close action or other tabletop miniatures games or even other like sophisticated board games. I'm going to come on this RPG podcast and say... I love playing those way that has shown me that I love playing those way more than I actually do like playing RPGs. So get that challenge, that, get that, that the challenge, the tactile, I, get that. Cause you know, the, the gnome stew admits that challenge is probably not the most heavily favored aspect in RPGs. And I think, I think that's, you know, I think that's part of a big thing for me as to why, like, when I play RPGs, I'm not as having as much fun. And that's been the case for several years now. I think that's a major aspect of it. For me, challenge is is a big draw. And I think that, yeah, that, that sort of lack is part of why I haven't as much enjoyed RPGs. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, like I'm doing my episode every at least once a time train, but hopefully it's gone. Um, the... Uh, I do think there's some like strategy strategy aspects that have like grown for me in at least a, like a desire in like combat of an RPG after having played close action and like more of that type of thing, wanting that to be a part of of that. So like the tactics of the thing of like, I'm not just going to stand 
I don't, I don't just want to like step up and just swing my sword from this one square. I want there to be like more to that. And I think that comes from playing some of these coordinated games. Yeah. 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 And, and like desiring even to in some ways, like not optimize in order to optimize fun, you know, like in, in that way for me at least, but, but also kind of in balance with this, it's the, you know, this is a team sport, you know, and all these things. And, um, even I think like the paying attention in close action to, you know, Barry, you were saying like, like, what do I want to do? What do I, what do I need to do? What do I think they're going to do? And what do I think my allies are going to do? Um, being more aware of that in an RPG setting of like, this is a group game there. I need to look out for like my party also. And, and maybe I'm playing a selfish character who doesn't care, but like <laughs> as a player, you know, and this is like maybe a player role kind of thing, even like, do I actually care about the people around this table and like what they're, are they having fun? So I, that that's helped, I think to like be more aware in the close action setting of like, I don't want to wreck him or like get in his way or her way because block their shot or yeah, yeah that's going to be, that's not going to be great for them or our team, you know, kind of thing. So that that's, right. that's played a role. A little I'd bit. also say I've seen some, like if you're going to play close action, don't play it selfishly. Cause I've mm-hmm. seen that right. where it's like, Oh, I'm just going to go do whatever I want. Yeah. I'm going to just take my ship and I'm just going to go fly around. Well, mm-hmm you mess around and you find out what happens in close action. If you do, <laughs> like you just can't, you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually done the reverse of what you said, hmm. Adam. I had a, a, maybe like several PBMs ago. I had a player who was maybe like struggling and it seemed like they were like overthinking all of their, which can mm-hmm. be a very, I say this as, you know, <laughs> someone who is definitely an overthinker. <laughs> In the PBM, you can fall into overthink because you have a lot of space between your turns. At the tabletop, yes. you're trying to move these. You don't have a, I don't have a, cl- a timer, but PBM online, you can just sit there with it and it can, yeah. you can do a little bit too much. I think there was a player who was playing in the new, who was new to the game. He was, I think they've played RPGs with you. And I think they were like trying to conceptualize like 3D chess, 4D chess. And I think the next time I was like, you're a human fighter without any powers or feats. Just yeah. go up and hit somebody. Like, right. I, I, so I try to maybe simplify mm-hmm. it. It's like, yeah, let's get a broadside. Yeah, move the guns and get a broadside. Yeah, none of the three D chess, no four D chess. Right. Move the ship, get a shot. Keep keep pummeling them with yeah. shots. And so it's like, mm-hmm. just think of yourself as a human fighter, and just 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 go do what right. you do. <laughs> step go up, lay the other person, step up. And and get a hit in there. That that yeah. and just keep doing that and knock them out before they knock you out. Yeah, right. That's cool. That's good. Speaking of fighters, going back to being horrified by being on ships. If you're a cleric or a paladin who uses full plate mail, you don't want to wear those things when you're. Nope. <laughs> nope. That's another part of the thing that scares me about fantasy uh, <laughs> on nautical adventures. Like, yeah. you you can't do it. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. There's another. Well, what we else we got? Let's get yeah. another question here before the end. Um, so, random encounters. So, this is a, a question from Chris Case, who's he's sent some in. And uh, this is uh, asking a question before it slips out of my mind. Uh, hey, guys, you may have answered this already, but I wanted to ask what your thoughts are on random encounters in town, on the road, or in a dungeon. Sometimes things just happen. Do you try to plan a random encounter 
out just to have stats available in case the party tries to fight? Or do you roll a percentage to see if the random encounter actually happens and use the planned out baddies uh, or a chance encounter with a good person who might have something the party needs? Just curious about how you might go about it. Thanks again, Chris Case from the Day Daywalker Syndicate. I have a couple thoughts on this, mm -hmm. as always. Uh, so I have, I, I've talked on here about Combat Manager, uh, a thing that helps me quickly get yeah. stats of any kind that I need. I have that handy because I like to allow my party to decide, hey, we're going to go there. And I never expected it. And there's a guy over there that they want to fight. And I'm like, okay, grab this. It's skinned as that guy. These are his stats. And we go and we keep the flow of the game. So that can kind of be like a random encounter that I didn't expect. But then there's another thought about random encounters. And that is, uh, we have another question. I don't know if we were planning to get to it today. But it's like, what do you do about like uh, overland travel? You know, you have like long travel or time duration. So uh, just to put all this into kind of a perspective in the, in the game that uh, I've been running called the dormant mind, they, they went to the, I forget the number. I'll just make up one like the 478th level of hell. It was called occipitus and they were stuck in this place. And it was a, it, the whole thing just felt completely different than every other place they'd ever been, you know, from like a fleshy sort of ground that was almost, you know, with big hairs and say it just burning everywhere. It was, it was a, an odd place, but it was a, uh, a place where they had to do a lot of travel in order to really kind of get the understanding of this place. And so in there, um, I knew they were going to be traveling like overnight. Uh, and so I, I didn't want it to just be like, a, okay, you, you walk all night and then you get this place. I wanted there, there to be these things that really got this sense of what this was. And so I did have, you know, every four hours of time that they were traveling, I'm going to roll these dice. And on this table, there's a, there's this or this or this, that's going to like randomly attack them and give them a flavor of what this place is. And so I would set up in that case, I would set up uh, some stat blocks of, you know, whatever these monsters or whatever these uh, things that they would come across that they would have to battle in random encounters. Um, and so I've, I've done that. Uh, it's mostly when I want to show that a distance is great or a duration is great. That's the only place I'll have random encounters. I don't just throw them in just to throw them in. But like, I also don't want to like, okay, they're going to go 100 miles and I'm going to plan every 10 miles they're going to do this. I'm just going to occasionally let a percentile dice say, oh, and I don't make it a great percentage. It's not like it's, you know, 20% that it's going to happen. Or, I mean, 80% uh, that it's going to happen every time. It's more than 20%. It's a rarity, but they're going to have some random things. Again, just to show that this is a something that took time uh, either in distance or in, in duration to get through. I know you've hinted at red markets on this podcast, but that's something I like about red markets. It's like you have the mission that you're going to, but there's some distance between your base camp and where the mission is. And it might be mm -hmm. a two leg journey. Maybe it's a three leg journey. And on every one of those legs, something is going to happen, be it a combat, be it some sort of NPC or be it some sort of flavor I, I, I kind of like that. And you have to like burn a ration yeah. every time. You already know how many legs. It does give that sense of journey. It mm -hmm. does give that sense of like, and I, of like really building the world, especially like some of the flavor uh, aspects. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that about red markets. Mm -hmm. So if I was ever going to run a DND &D game, I would love to fuse fifth edition with red markets. And I would mm -hmm. borrow heavily from some of their mechanics, including yeah. 
this is a two-leg journey. Maybe we have a random monster encounter. Maybe it's a group yeah. of wood elves. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's some just some sort of like flavor scenic that doesn't have any actual human encounter or right. humanoid encounter, but gives some sort of flavor of the theme of the game. I, I would I think that can be a good way to give those senses, and I would do mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's really interesting because I, I do. This is one of those for me that definitely is uh, like system specific with that. I and it's kind of the way I run. Like a D and D or a Pathfinder for me, I think tends to be a lot more like this. I have specific things that I want to accomplish in this. I like the idea a lot of the like creating time and distance. Like I, I do, I like that a lot. Um, but I don't. I don't think if like the party was going from this town to another that I would likely put like just roll randomly on a table to say, okay, you, you actually are going to fight five wolves now because I rolled it. Unless there was a good reason for me, like I, I want there to be um story that's driven forward um, or like something that's discovered specifically. If I'm going to have an encounter like that between those, and um, so I don't typically use like tables kind of in those those kind of realms, but I, I do like the idea of I would be more apt to like go and look at a table and then plan. I'm going to use five wolves <laughs> because right. I want them to be led to the den that has this thing that they're going to find because it's a story element for later or could could turn into a story element. Um, so kind of cheating that. But like Barry said, I love I actually love the idea um, and the usage of like in the back of that book, you know, is a hundred, maybe more. I can't remember the number, but it's a hundred random. Like you can just roll your 2d tens and say, you come across this on this leg. And I actually like that for that game a lot. Um, and I don't know what the difference is there, but it, I think it does. Speed is a difference. Yeah. <laughs> Red markets moves a lot faster than a combat of Pathfinder or D and D. Yeah, your five wolf combat's going to basically take your session right. and stop you from getting to the maybe the main thing, which right. is a reason not to include it. Whereas, you know, you come across eight casualties in red markets, aka zombies. That's going to be a pretty quick, yeah, you know, right. thing that gets finished. Yeah. A thing that like kind of combining Matthew, you were talking about like the 80 or 20 and Barry bringing up red markets. I do a thing that came out of that and we're going to have a red markets like episode sometime, but the, what am I trying to go for? Oh, he, Caleb's uh, Stokes, like when he made that rant, that table for red markets there, there's like a different levels of like, this is extremely dangerous. This is kind of dangerous. This is, completely neutral this actually is a good thing for you like you come across oh there is a car full of supplies well i'm gonna put that canned food in my you know pack because um, i need rations later like that um there's even those kind of things and and that like even like the 80 20 thing i do find it interesting i think it'd be cool to implement of like sometimes there's an encounter but it doesn't have to be like you have to fight orcs, you know, it's like, or you came across a trap. It could be there's a random person selling things on the side of the road. Who's actually going to be a big help to you or this completely neutral thing of we could just bypass this or maybe something would good at, come good out of it. I, I think that like percentage idea for me would be kind of interesting to, to put into play even of like, 
if it's going to be random, let's make it random where the like uh, just lost the words completely. It, whether it's good or bad or neutral for us is going to come into play with that too. Or something flew over your head while you were camping at night and you could sense it, mm. but but that's it. It just kind right. of freaked you out a little bit, but then yeah. it was the GM knowing like, okay, all I was doing was just giving them this little snippet. Yeah. But now we're not really going to track that down or it's not going to come yeah. after them, but it was just yeah. something that was there that happened to fly by. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's flavor. It, <laughs> it adds like depth to that. And um, we're not just in a vacuum every mm -hmm. time we go to sleep kind of thing. So yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, awesome. So uh, Matthew kind of started talking to this, but uh, we had one more question from Evan Bright. I think we have a little time for here. Um, and he is asking about overland travel in this. This is Haversack questions batch November 30th. Uh, greetings, Matthew and Adam and Barry. Uh, hope you had a swell Thanksgiving with holiday travel on the brain. I'd like to know, how do you prefer to run long distance overland travel in your games? Evan Bright. Yeah, so I uh, I mentioned uh, having those encounters when we were in Occipitus, that level of hell, which is a pretty antagonistic place. You're not going to go there and have a picnic. Uh, and so, of course, you're going to have encounters. But I think for me, it is to give a flavor of place is what I like to do. If they have to travel over land, they need to get more of a 3D picture of what this is. And so with Occipitus, that's going to involve, you know, a crevice in the ground that looks like a giant scar that's going to have these things in it and, you know, flying creatures that are horrendous uh, nightmares and all this stuff. But when you're up on land, that's going to look different. I think in one of mine, uh, I had people going uh, on overland travel and I just had them run across this wizarding competition and it had no served no purpose. It was just some wizards who had all got together and they had like a festival sort of atmosphere yeah. going on. They were just doing wizarding competitions. And some of your people, some of our people joined in. One of them got a big stone to the chest, about killed himself. Mm -hmm. But uh, they, they had an opportunity to just take part in some of the games and they didn't have to, but it gave a sense of flavor of like, what is this area of the world like? Uh, and as they move on, you know, they move into giant territory, you start to see those, those, those huge, everything is bigger and you run into some, again, it's not always encounters. Sometimes it's going to be festivals. Sometimes it's going to be gatherings. Sometimes it's going to be, you know, who knows those feasts we talked about, but that's, uh, typically with overland travel, either I skip it <laughs> pretty much, or I use it to add flavor for what they're about to encounter. I'd say, yeah, the same thing. Just kind of similar to my last answer. Give that sense of, I, I like the idea of overland travel mm -hmm. and giving that flavor and having those random encounters and burning rations. But also, again, Pathfinder D&D doesn't always work because of, you know, bogging right. things down from where you want to go. I, yeah. I think it really works well in red markets. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I yeah. Would either, again, fuse red markets together with D&D or whoever <laughs> red markets should come out with a fantasy version. Mm -hmm. I, I'd be pretty, I said I was burned out of like, Pathfinder D and D, but I tell you, if you either of you said you were going to get a uh, Red Markets game going, like eh, I think I'd be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of my burnout is D and D and Pathfinder itself as mm. mechanically. So I'm actually looking forward to the next podcast about making monsters fresh. Mm, I think part yeah. of it's like, oh, it's a bunch of orcs. I've never seen that before. I don't mm, know. Right. But I think that's part of yeah. my aspects yeah. too. So, yeah. so yeah, cool. I love the idea. Doesn't for me doesn't always work. Mm for D and D or Pathfinder. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely feel the, the like, 
okay, it's either this happened, I just explained what you went through and now we're here. That can be, that can be a case of that. Um, uh, I am not a, like, I'm going to figure out exactly what every place, how long it takes to get there. Like, I feel like that question comes up a lot and it's like, it's always like, uh, what's the, uh, um, one of my favorite quotes and Oh brother, where art thou? It's a geographical oddity two weeks from everywhere, you know, kind of thing. It's like, everything's two weeks away. And, um, the, uh, that that's like kind of what, what happens when I try to get into that mode of like, all right, measuring distances and figuring things out. And, but I, I want there to be purpose. And I think, I think the journey does like play a role for me more and more of, in these times when people in my my game right now, the Jade Masks game, it's like, okay, you're they traveled from Tifa's Edge, this big bustling city, up through going to the north to this lake where the Thieves Guild like head was gonna lay down the mantle of the Thieves Guild at this place and it could be passed on to somebody else. And that could have very easily been like, well, you traveled for a month and you know, now now you're here and now this this matters. But I wanted to I wanted to populate the world for one um, and make it more real. Um, but I also felt like the story of the game, I wanted to start throwing out hooks as they traveled to make that happen. So I can think it really matters about, or it depends on what you're wanting to do with the travel. Like does, is this a storytelling device or is it like a means to an end? you know, kind of thing. And if it's a storytelling device, I, I think throwing out a lot of like stops and hiccups and inter, uh, interruptions, you know, to the group um, can be helpful as long as you don't exasperate them. Um, I had fun as a, as a GM in that travel where they, there was a couple NPCs with the group. And for whatever reason, from the first scene of the game, this one NPC was just hated. I don't know even what, what was the deal with her, but like everybody hated her. And uh, from the beginning, I mean, like it was like, we're starting the game. You see her, she's standing in the doorway and it like immediately was a problem. But um, so she was with them and I just loved like, as the party kept having heroics, doing things, saving people, adventuring as they went along. She's just like, are you kidding me? are we doing this again? You got to play the heroes every time. You know, it's like, it's like, she was like, I got to badger them as I was like putting these things in front of them. And so that was a lot of fun, but, um, and kind of digressing, but the, like, I, I like that for a reason. It's like, if we're going to do overland travel and if we're going to make these pauses, I want there to be story reasoning, not just like, Oh, I need to get people to level five before they get to this place. You know, like I want there to be more than that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, cool. we are so glad that you guys joined us. Uh, and we're so glad that Barry could join and I us. Also throw in, I, I don't know if you're going to throw up some of the pictures I sent. I sent some pictures of PBM version, the yeah. online version, what it looks like. And I sent some pictures of what actual tabletop uh, in person looks like. Obviously, that will give you a much better visual feel of kind of what we're talking about ships versus ships. Yeah. Uh, and but so I think check that out on some of your socials. Yep. Instagram. Be sure to check Instagram. Visual for what I was talking about. It's great to be on here both with you. And I also want to say I know we're hours apart, but I certainly hope we get to do some in-person tabletop close action again. Yes. In the near future. For sure. Yeah. Well, we're thankful for you joining us, Barry. We're yeah. thankful for all of you joining us, all you arising and ascending GMs. 
Join us next time. We're going to talk about freshening monsters. It's going to be a blast. See you then on Rise of the GM. See y'all. Thanks, guys.